My name is John Franz. I'm a, a professor emeritus. That means I'm quite old, really. Um, a retired professor um, of medieval history, and my speciality was uh, the Crusades and medieval warfare. And I spent my life doing research on these subjects and found it very, very engaging. And I have never been able to stop. I mean, I retired a very long time ago, over 12 years ago, but I'm still writing and still publishing because I find this subject absolutely and enormously engaging. At the moment, there's a very special reason why I feel very... Uh, I feel about it quite strongly, and that is because you will have seen the um, terrible scenes of devastation in southeast Turkey. Now, the Crusades, much of the action of the Crusades took place in Antioch, the First Crusade, and in southeast uh, Turkey more generally. And almost all the towns whose ruins you've seen are places I've been to and spent time at doing research. And that has given me a very strong, you know, a great upset in a sense, and a great fear too for the people of the area. In the Crusade times, there were many earthquakes, including a particularly horrific one, but never anything on quite this scale and with quite the death rate. And although the Crusades were horrible uh, in many ways, and although they involved terrible loss of life, it was nothing like what we've been watching on the screen. And... The fact that I've been to these places so often and spent so much time there brings home to me just how much the Crusades have come to mean in my lifetime. Can I can I ask that that's an interesting dichotomy between because I was wondering when you started talking about Turkey, if you were going to say, I'm shocked by how much archaeological and historical um items might have been lost and it was none of that it was i study these this older ancient history but i visited this here so it's alive for me maybe could you describe a little bit your trips back and forth to that area <clears throat> as you think about them and how the current inhabitants and the current way of life and and the life you see there now sort of interacts with when you go there and think about all the things that are long gone well i first went there 35 years ago um, and I was following, or trying to establish, really, the route of the First Crusade. And I was travelling right the way across Anatolia, what is now Turkey, um, at a time when it was not very developed. Um, and Antioch was one of the central places that I had to go to and spend time in because so much of the crusade was taken up by the siege of Antioch. And I used Antioch to a certain extent as a centre to visit all kinds of places, castles, but above all, check out routes round about. And Antioch is a very um, ancient place. Its walls, to some extent, are actually there, you can see pretty well the extent of the city which the Crusaders besieged for eight months. I mean, eight months in terrible conditions. They besieged this city. And uh, this city on the plain. And it is a remarkable place. Very little of it, apart from obvious ruins, is very ancient because the city has been modernised. One crucial place on the, on the, in the city where fighting was particularly intense um, was at the time that I was there uh, crowned by 
a 1930s French cinema. Um, <laughs> you have a city which has grown, it's very ancient indeed, and developed, and yet it was still very largely at that time east of the River Orontes, very much the same recognisable city. And, you know, you felt immediately that this is a place which has seen so much history and which still registers Crusader history very precisely. Up on the mountain is the Citadel of Antioch. And one of our sources, a man called Raymond of Hachille, writing about it, says that as you approach the citadel, there stands before you a little rocky valley with a cistern, that is a water cistern, at the bottom. And beyond 30, kilometers, 30 yards, roughly, is the citadel. And as I walked across towards that, suddenly this site, so accurately described, opened up. So Antioch is a city which, for me, is still very much the Crusader city. The city on the plain, crammed full of buildings, some of which are very ancient, very difficult to distinguish them from modern concrete, low-rise blocks. That city was almost impenetrable after the earthquake. Impenetrable because so much had collapsed. There was film on television of a guide, a man who shows foreigners around the city. I remember him standing on what was the Roman city, the Roman, um, the main Roman street. Um, and he said to the cameraman, I can hardly find my way round this place. And it isn't the collapse of historic buildings, though there are historic buildings that have collapsed. It's the terrible suffering that that involves, which, you know, really stands out. And it's suffering in a, a historic environment, which I know very well. And that has left me, you know, rather shocked by the whole set of events. And I hope I never see such a thing again. Um. So thinking about that happening in the present day, I know many um, modern folks, as they think back to the Crusades, I am profoundly uneducated about the Crusades. But in general, in the overall global view, I feel like I grew up with in America, the Crusades were it were wars and battles that did not need to be fought, that were fought for religious reasons. The other um, misconception that maybe we can dig into is these were wars and battles of plunder, that these were Western Europeans marching into Jerusalem, hoping these these nobles were hoping to get money and land and, and, and pro money, land, property, all the other things they could get. Um, the Crusades just sound... Uh, overall bad. It was a bad thing. Hope it had never happened. As you as a historian that digs into it, that has a more nuanced view, maybe you could dig into that. I'll present those first misconceptions and maybe we can dig into how true are those? How true are those are of particular crusades versus another crusade? I think people have a fairly si simplified view of the crusades and the words have been used so many times. Urban II, Pope Urban II, launched the First Crusade in 1095. And he, as head of the Catholic Church, had a clear view of Islam as a religion which he hated, which ought to be rolled back. He looked in his mind's eye, I think, back to the days of the Roman Empire when the uh, Mediterranean was a Christian lake, and I think that thought dominated his mind. But most of the people we were talking to didn't have that kind of knowledge or outlook at all. People in Northern Europe knew very, very little about Islam. The only, the first 
mention of the Prophet Muhammad, remember he dies in 632, Islam expands enormously, the first mention of him in a northern European source comes about the year 1000. Not even mentioned before then, except by very occasionally by people who rely on southern Europeans telling them things and react accordingly. But the first really interesting attempt to say, what is Islam? What is this religion? Is a man called Rodolphus Gleber, and he's writing about events that took place in the 970s, and he's writing about the year 1000. And he, he finds Islam quite interesting. And I think most Northern Europeans didn't think much about the world of the Mediterranean and the rise of Islam. For them, it was very remote. Southern Europeans may have thought about it a bit more because the Mediterranean was subject to terrible raiding, shipborne raiding, all over the Mediterranean. But people in, say, Italian ports were very well aware of the fact that many of the pirates were Christians <laughs> and, and not Muslims at all. Um, but what people had come to value and in their spiritual lives, and what the upper class particularly valued, was the notion that Christianity would confer upon them, or their observance of Christianity would confer upon them, a eternal life. They had become convinced of that. And what Urban II said to them was that their way of life the way of life of the upper class, which depended on warfare heavily, which was extremely violent. They knew that violence carries spiritual penalties. And he said to them, as long as you go to Jerusalem at my bidding and with my blessing, not for monetary gain or glory, then you will, as it were, all your sins will be forgiven. You'll be able to wipe out the sins of your sins of the past, and that will be accorded to you, that virtue, on the day that you die. And should you die during the crusade, of course, the sense was that you would immediately therefore go to heaven. All your sins would be abolished because of your intention to liberate Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was particularly important because people used to go there to, to in penance for their sins. Um, one of the most notorious of French barons, full Count of Anjou, went to Jerusalem no more, no less than three times, perhaps four times, in his long life. Why would he go to Jerusalem? He went to Jerusalem because to make that pilgrimage, to undertake that penance, was to free himself of something of the burden of sin. Now, what Urban II said was, in 1095, if you fight your way to Jerusalem and liberate it for the love of God, then all your sins, effectively, will be forgiven, or at least the penance for them will be forgiven. So that what you have is a momentary opening of the gate to heaven. And for a Christian upper class brought up with a profound sense of the punishment that God had in store for them for their sins. This was a moment of liberation when they could enter into the kingdom of heaven. So their objective really was Jerusalem and the fact that 
some people got in the way, whether they were Muslims or, in some cases, Greeks who were Christians, if they were regarded as enemies, they are to be killed. But not primarily because of their religion, primarily because they may stand in the way of opening Jerusalem, of liberating Jerusalem for the true faith. So the crusade is a very complicated business, and it's primarily a religious undertaking. Now, that doesn't mean <laughs> that when people went for pure motives, not at all, because inevitably, if an army marched across into hostile territory, it was going to do all kinds of things which could open up the path to wealth and well-being. They needed ships. Ships went to their aid. And the cities like Genoa and Pisa could see profit in trade. Individual crusaders could see. You have to remember that life was very short at the time. It could be very brutal. People died of very simple diseases. The average age of life was probably around 30. And even for the upper class, it wasn't much more. If you survived beyond your 40s, you could probably have what we would regard as a normal life, if you're lucky. But there was a very high chance, if you were a knight, a soldier, that you could contract diseases, you could be killed in quarrels with friend, with, with family, you could be killed in quarrels with neighbours, you could be killed in the king's wars. In that sense, the crusade was a hazard, but you were living a pretty hazardous life anyway. And heaven knows, you know, Jerusalem is the centre of the earth, according to the Bible, it's the land flowing with milk and honey. The East is known to be rich, and it was rich. So that the initial propulsion, if you like, is the hope of salvation. But if this is a righteous war for salvation and the liberation of Jerusalem, then loot and perhaps land are righteous consequences and things that you can hope properly to receive. So that the crusade, although primarily a religious matter, it opens the gateway to salvation. Also brings with it many, many other hopes. And you've got to remember the primacy of religion because many of the people who went were very rich. The Count of Flanders ruled the wealthy wool-making cities of Flanders, the Flemish cities. The Count of Toulouse was fabulously wealthy in the south. Stephen of Blois, one of the participants and leaders, was known to be, what well, he was regarded as one of the richest men in France. Why would they go except for salvation? But that doesn't mean that others who followed them weren't following other routes and other paths and were hopeful of gain. So the crusade is a cocktail. What impels people to the East is a cocktail of religion, of greed, of opportunism, of wealth-seeking. All that is there, but primarily in a huge movement. This is an army of 60,000 or so. That's the equivalent from the same area nowadays, of same area of Europe nowadays, of about a million and a half. Now, if you saw an army of a million and a half Europeans heading eastwards, you wouldn't assume they all had the same motivation, would you? Right. You would assume that in some way 
there was a cocktail at work. There was a mixture of feelings. A mixture of feelings as between individuals and as within individuals. And that's precisely what the crusade produces. Can I ask, in the span of the time you first began studying the Crusades seriously in probably your college career, maybe you started your interest started earlier, to now, have you seen people's attitudes or how they talk about the Crusades change significantly from decade to decade? You know, was there a lull and then a spike of interest? I mean, 9-11 again presenting sort of rhetoric from... A, a new group of, of fundamentalist Muslims was that these crusades were alive for them. And I always think about the example of like Bosnia Herzegovina, where these old tribal and ethnic things that people had sort of forgotten and dismissed are bubbled up again and become alive again. This is a real thing. These crusaders came long ago, but for us, it's alive for us right now, that ancient history. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how, how you've seen the attitude as you've studied this wax and wane? If you look at the academic study of the Crusades first, until the 1960s or the late 60s, the Crusades were seen as a kind of exotic bolt-on to European history. They were seen essentially as economic phenomenon because from the 1920s really onwards, history had been powerfully influenced by an economic interpretation of history. And therefore it was very easy to look at the Crusades and say, oh, this is just a kind of um, uh, excuse for pillage, for trading, for going for the wealth of the East. And that idea of the economic interpretation of the Crusade was very powerful right when I began to study it in the early 60s. And it was still very influential into the 70s. Wait, can I interrupt right there? Was it influential to you at the time? Or were you a bit contrarian? Like, I think there's more to this than is presented. No, I, I, it was very influential to me. I mean, I, I accepted it generally in general terms. But as I looked at it more closely, I began to realize that this was, to say the least, a simplification and there was uh, a man called Jonathan Riley Smith, who was latterly professor at Cambridge, and Jonathan put forward the view that this was primarily a religious movement. Now, that's a quite difficult idea to put forward at the time, and it's very difficult for people to grasp, because what he was saying, and I think he was right, is that religious that a religious movement brought about the crusade and these expeditions to the east, but that is not to say that everybody went for religious reasons. <laughs> um, that's a totally different. So academically, academics have moved from a very simplistic, semi-Marxist interpretation to a more nuanced interpretation of individual motives varying enormously, but on a base of religious understanding and outlook and religious fear, fear of the fire of hell. So academics have become much more cautious about advancing generalizations. But it's very easy to see the crusade in other terms. And I think one of the key factors was Huntington's um, theory, advanced in the 1990s, of a clash of civilizations. After the fall of the Soviet Union, um, he had wrote a very startling book in which he suggested that from now on it will be cultural factors amongst which, of course, is religion, which will dominate the collisions between human beings, that people will fight according to their 
outlook, which will partly be dominated by religious factors. Um, and when 9-11 came along, it seemed in a curious, you know, in a very obvious way to um, exemplify, to prove that Huntington was right. Um, and in a certain sense, it sort of brought the Crusades, which were always regarded as kind of a bit negative, um, it gave them a positive meaning. And they had always, there was always a curious ambivalence in popular attitudes. On the one hand, you know, the Crusades were seen as a sort of Western European raid on a civilised Middle East, destructive and humanitarian. On the other hand, there was recognised self-sacrifice, so that Eisenhower's um, memoirs crusade in Europe. Yeah. And when 9-11 came along, suddenly I think the crusade took on a rather positive, seemed to be a rather positive appearance, that somehow we, the West, had to appear... Um, you know, crusading was okay because we were being, in a sense, crusaded against. Um, I think that has dissipated somewhat, um, but nonetheless, it was quite strong after 9-11. You're right. I specifically remember Huntington called out. I specifically remember all the stuff in the common press, and you'd go to the local bookstore, and there'd be all the books about East versus West and the fact that there was a battle. Somehow there were conflicting values and culture that these two cultures could not live together and could not interact properly. There was a huge clash coming. And you're right, 20 years after uh, 9-11, there is not as much talk about it, which I find maybe as I get older, I you know, went from my 20s to my 40s, it's interesting to see those things go along historically and see the fads jump up and then fall away. But did that, did that positive crusader, positive crusader state, positive fight against an opposing culture, that didn't as much affect the academic world, or did it? For that twenty years, did no, you it didn't affect the academic world. Okay, I think it affected outside the academic world. I think it affected quite a lot of people. Huntingdon seemed to be real after nine eleven, but the trouble is that there was also a conflicting force. Uh, a very strong force in American and European society, which argued against simple attitudes of hostility to groups. One of the remarkable things about uh, modern society is not that it's particularly good or particularly bad, but that there is a, a sense of an effort to look at groups and treat them fairly. And, I mean, Islam, there is a large Islamic presence in many Western European countries and in the United States, including us. I mean, in Britain, it's very large. And we are in the process of learning to live with this. And when I was a child, being brought up in the wake of the Second World War, you only saw British people, or what typologically right. are seen as British people with white faces and you know traditional clothing and going to church, or perhaps not much to church, but acknowledging church. And we don't live in that sort of society at all. And America has always lived in a very mixed society. And that has produced a countervailing force, which is you can't go around hating people for what they are. Only You can only hate people, really, for what they become or what they do to you. And that's become a fascinating dialogue, if you like. On the one hand, there are still people around who preach 
you know, a very simplified view of the Islamic world as a hostile mass. On the other hand, you know, there are lots of people who live next door to Islam, to Muslims, and simply accept them as neighbours and countrymen. So what we're seeing is that is actually quite a fascinating change in attitudes. Um, but it isn't, people don't all think alike. <laughs> Fundamental <laughs> lesson of history. <laughs> and you're never going I want to see a simple one-way tide. You're going to see collisions and tensions. We know that. But I think... It is certainly true that there is a more there is a strong sense that we should be that everybody should be tolerant one of another, not us and them, but all of us should respect one another as individuals, and that has its abuses and sillinesses, but nonetheless, it is a countervailing force to the Huntingdon thesis. And quite a strong one. Do you, as the so thinking back to the Crusades and maybe some of the academic move to look at those economically was also the slow, the success of technology, the technocracy, the success of of science to answer questions that once upon a time, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, the religionists had to use their spiritual, mystical deities to explain. Now we feel much more, ah, the moderns, we have much more understanding of how the universe works. We don't need those old ideas. Did you see, as you studied the Crusades, do you think part of the blindness to the Crusades was not taking seriously that what felt like a foreign mindset, people who take their religion, um, cosmologic cosmology seriously, that there is a heaven, there is a hell. I have done bad things and I will be punished eternally if I don't somehow find a way to get rid of it. Yes. And then you, cause you find in the present day, uh, with these lack of tolerance, the fights between religions, I find as someone who converted to a religion, sometimes more synergy with religionists than people who are angry toward religion or anti-religion. Maybe you could speak, a, I don't know if that, I'd speak a little to how the modern secular and the ancient and modern religionists, how you see those strands weaving. Well, I mean, there's no doubt about it that in the from the 1950s onwards in British society, which I was brought up in, but in Western society generally, the rise of scientific explanation had undermined um, Christianity. And I think one of the reasons why the economic interpretation of the Crusades was so influential was that people could understand the aspiration for wealth, but could not understand the aspiration for salvation. Yeah. Um, and I think that has been a very powerful influence. And one effect of the world as it developed in the 90s and into the 21st century, with particularly the rise of Islamic militancy, was an understanding that religion can matter a lot. <laughs> Um, it really was something that seemed very alien to the 60s and 70s. Yeah. But now look, is much more commonly understood that people will fight to the death for religion, that religion is bound up with the very belief and, and culture and sense of identity of people, of some people that in Western society that is dying and we have other identifications. Right. But in poorer societies, that is not true. That religion, including Christianity, can be a very powerful identifier, and very powerful indeed. I mean, it's a simple fact that in the Middle East there are a lot of very poor Christians um, and many of them are very, very, uh, notably in Lebanon, 
very militant. So the world is looking, you know, the, the, the broad generalizations of the past are tending to disappear and people are finding a very confusing society, a very confusing world where clashes of belief of all kinds are commonplace. And I think it is very difficult for young people particularly to to grow up in this society. And their attitudes are, you know, when they come across the Crusades, they have to think very seriously, and perhaps more seriously than my generation did, as to what they mean. Um, for me, you know, at age 18, this was a sort of exotic bolt-on to medieval history. I like medieval history, and here were the Crusades, jolly interesting, violent, and very clear phenomenon. That was what really struck me, that the Crusades were separate from other things. You could identify a crusade as something that was a phenomenon in itself. The more you looked at it, that tended to disappear as you, that sense, that clarity disappeared because the crusade is such a complex phenomenon. But nonetheless, you, you started with this very complex, very straightforward view of the world. And it's much more difficult, I think, for students now um, to follow that. Much more difficult. So I could see uh, that that um, situation you described of from the outside seeing something in a simplified way and that being attractive. And then I know the intoxicating feeling of something simplicities are attractive to you for some reason and you delve into it and their complexities are even better. So I did want to ask, um, a, a, knowing there's those intellectual joys in studying something in such depth that continues to yield complexity and nuance and new discoveries all the time, are there particular events or particular overall crusades or parts of crusades or individual people who for you have just been the most interesting and you, if there's a new book or there's something new you can learn about them, you always want to learn about that person or that particular event that happened in that city. <laughs> I think the focus of much writing has been the capture of Jerusalem in 1099. Jerusalem was held by the Shia um, Caliphate of Cairo. The Crusade had fought its way through Sunni lands, that is, Orthodox Islamic lands, and it now found itself confronting Islam, uh, confronting the Shia city of Jerusalem, it wasn't, the population of Jerusalem was actually quite complicated, but Jerusalem was held by the Shia. And this is the kind of ultimate collision of the crusade. You've got people who have fought and suffered for three years. They start leaving in Europe and their homes in 1095-1096, they march and fight for 4,000-plus miles. And then they finally get to their target, Jerusalem. In the course of that trip, probably a third of them have died. Quite a lot of others have deserted. And quite a few have just got lost or occupied friendly places in in southeast um, Anatolia, in southeast Turkey. And now, finally, the core of the crusade has got to its ultimate destination. And what follows when they finally fight their way into the city is a terrible, terrible massacre. And this massacre has rung through the ages. When Saladin reconquered the city, 
1187. Um, he said that he was going to massacre everybody in it because hadn't they massacred everybody in 1099? Um, but in the end, he was um, persuaded that this was not a good idea. And this notion of a total massacre has rung through the ages. And you have to wonder why there was such a terrible massacre. And there are all sorts of reasons. One of which is simply that if a city or a castle holds out against any enemy and refuses to capitulate or negotiate, then, in contemporary feeling, the citizens are at mercy. And an army breaking into a city is an army out of control. You have to think of... Siege is very bloody for the attacker particularly. It nearly always takes a terrible toll on the attacker. Even, you know, you, you only have to think of Stra Stalingrad. Um, uh, you know, a siege is a very difficult kind of battle. So that an army which breaks in, disposes of the enemy, but doesn't know that it's disposed of the enemy, in narrow streets, is out of control. You can't say, hey boys, you know, quieten down now, chaps. We've got here, and, you know, these people are productive and they're simple people, you don't have to kill them. Um, because it, you're not going to listen. People get angry. There's a very famous story of a, um, a British officer, a British unit, attacks a German trench, is finally after casualties successful, and the garrison of the trench put their hands up and say they're going to surrender. And they're all shot to cries of too late, mate. Um, is what happens at Jerusalem just that? Or is it something else? How far has the crusade become a, an army of zealots for whom blood is merely the price of victory. It's very difficult to say. It's such an astonishing event in itself. Um, and I think you know, there, are, there are very many elements in it. Um, but um, it is an astonishing event, and it's the great memory of the Crusades. It's something that very many people have heard about, and it characterises the crusade firmly, and it gives it the stamp of Islam versus Christianity. Was that for the moment? I don't think it was true of the crusaders as a whole. The crusaders quite admired the Turks, for example, their main enemy. Um, what happened at Jerusalem is a particular event which is fascinating and absolutely horrible, of course, in itself. So that, that gives me the perfect wedge to ask the question I, I wanted to ask. So the religion I converted to uh, 15 years ago is Judaism. My first encounter with crusades, I didn't get much stuff in college or high school. Crusades, just like you said, it's like a little bolted-on thing to older European history. Interesting events, but <clears throat> unless you go and read a few books about it, that's it. It's just a little thing. You move on. And then the Crusades were presented inside Jewish history as part of a long line of anti-Jewish attack over the centuries from the Christians or Muslims around them. And then when the tide would turn where the Muslims are friendly with us for a long time, then they're not friendly. The Christians are friendly with us for some period of time where they like us, and then they kick us out and they, all kinds of reasons. So thinking about this sort of massacre that happened to Jerusalem, to run the clock back to maybe what happens as they march across, so they're marching from their homes to Jerusalem, but in between, there's a bunch of cities that may have Jewish populations. And of course, there's no Muslims there. The only non-Christians are the Jews. And so maybe you could just speak a little bit from your nuanced perspective. What do you think was happening in those 
either well-controlled crusading armies that moved through, because I read about some that were, and other ones where they sort of went off the the plot. They lost the plot and either, as you said, attacked a friendly city and tried to take control for their own reasons, or the people lashed out at the Jews in a particular town. So how did the Jews come out from your perspective in looking at the Crusades? Well, the 11 Jews were a minority in Western Europe, um, a minority which had very few guarantees of protection. Um, by and large, Christian authorities took the view that you should not persecute Jews. The papacy right. repeatedly pointed this out. But there were a lot of reasons for why Jews were targets. Um, the First Crusade is preached mainly in northern France and southern France. And those, some people from northern France travel into the Rhine Valley. And we have letters from French Jews to the Jews of the Rhine Valley saying, watch out, these people are persecutors. Okay. What they're persecuting for is the sense that we are going to deliver Jerusalem from the hand of the infidel. And yet here is the infidel on our own back door, our own front door, um, and that can justify persecution. There's no doubt at all that there was a strong anti-Semitic feeling in Western Europe. As particularly in the cities of Western Germany and Northern France. You can trace it very clearly. Um, Jerusalem was destroyed by the mad Caliph Hakim, the Caliph of Cairo, in 1009 to 1010, for reasons that don't concern us here. It was destroyed by an Egyptian ruler, but the story that circulated in Europe, which comes out in two chronicles, was that he had done it under the influence of Jewish lies to destroy Christianity. So there was a lot of anti-Semitism around. And some of that anti-Semitism undoubtedly expressed itself in extorting money. And the crusade Crusaders marched into the Rhine Valley. Now, the Rhine Valley is a very particular area because there are lots of important, though very small, cities. And there were pogroms. And there were pogroms in other places, Prague, for example, which are almost certainly Crusaders are blamed for. But one writer, a man called Albert of Aachen, who lived more or less in the Rhineland, says that it wasn't the Crusaders who started it. He says that there was feeling against the Jews and the Crusaders precipitated it, which is different. In other words, and I'd, their yeah. feeling against the Jews expressed quite strongly in these Jewish strongholds along the Rhine was then taken up by locals with their own motives. And as they march eastwards and get away from um, Western Europe, there's virtually no mention of Jews um, until they get to Jerusalem. And there was a major Jewish minority in Jerusalem and that major Jewish minority knew perfectly well all about the massacres in the Rhine Valley, and it blamed the Crusaders, and Jews manned the walls of Jerusalem against the First Crusade. It's not surprising, therefore, that we know that when they broke in, the Jewish quarter was wasted and destroyed, people took refuge in the synagogue, and its roof was burnt over their heads, we're told. But we're also told 
that many Jews survived. And the reason we know they survived is because of the Janitsa of the of one of the um, synagogues in Cairo. The Cairo Janitsa letters which have survived, some of them talk about um, how much they had to pay to ransom Jews in Jerusalem. Okay. Um, the Genitza letters are very famous, and quite rightly so. So, Jews represent an alien in Western society. The only aliens, really. They were protected by the wealthy, the powerful, who used them effectively to tax the rest of the population. Right. Um, yeah. And therefore, they were that increased the hatred. I mean, in England, the English king was the protector of the Jews, and he simply allowed the Jews to charge huge money, huge um, interest on loans, and then took the money. Something which that's slightly later than I'm talking about, but. It's hardly surprising that this very small minority, concentrated in a few places, arouses very strongly mixed feelings and a good deal of hostility. And the crusade is a very emotional movement, and it latches on to that. And undoubtedly, I mean, it is a simple fact that um, um, the... Um, language of European, North European Jewry, which is, and I've forgotten the word, not Hebrew, but... Uh, like uh, Ashkenazi, Sephardic, the ones from Spain? No, the language. Um, oh, he... Yiddish. Uh, oh, Yiddish, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Yiddish is actually medieval German. And it was established particularly in Poland because persecution drove Western European Jews eastwards and Poland, for a variety of reasons, was a great centre. And Yiddish is actually a dialect of German and a Rhenish dialect of German. It's, and time after time, it's these cities like Cologne which are the centre of crusader persecution of Jews. Uh, can I ask, after many years looking at the Crusades um, and uh, things spanning hundreds of years um, with various Crusades and after pre-effects and after-effects, has it made you um, look at the Crusades as an example of not just what not to do, or are there parts in the Crusades that really have sort of strengthen your view and humans are good uh human uh, tolerance can prevail mm -hmm. or do you look at or does it either seem too dark and too bloody or too foreign from our mindset today for people to learn something about how to conduct themselves today from the crusades long ago well i think the picture predominantly is dark <laughs> the first crusade yeah. ambles through uh the middle east to jerusalem and it's successful um, and what it shows is the astonishing resilience of people. I mean, they, they fought many battles, they fought many enemies, and always were victorious because they had a high sense of determination and cohesion. Whether for good or evil, that is nonetheless admirable in itself. But the price of that victory was hatred. I don't think the crusade is born out of hatred to Islam, or particularly Islamic hatred of the West. I don't... I, I think the two entities have only limited contact, in Spain most notably. And even in Spain, the you know there are plenty of alliances between uh, West between Christians and Muslims, 
But the result of the crusade is to generate hatred. That the taking up of arms in this particular context, a religious context, provokes a counter-crusade, the jihad, and establishes in the minds of people at the present time a vision of hatred and collision which is, as it were, is produced by the Crusades much more than it is a cause of the Crusade. So overall, the Crusade do present you know, a rather bleak picture of how human events develop. The Crusaders may have wanted Jerusalem simply, and I think that is what they did want, basically, it was a gateway to heaven. That was how they looked at it. But in seeking it, in getting it, they generated a lasting hatred, which you know, people who are well disposed towards one another always run into. It's no good you're going to run into it. And it's almost impossible to discuss current affairs of the Middle East, for example, without the word crusade coming into it. Um, I remember being on a bus, um, travelling through what is the West Bank, through the West Bank, um, at a time when relations were probably at the calmest they've ever been, and meeting a group of schoolboys, 17, 18-year-olds, who were anxious, as children are, to learn, to, to develop their English, were happy to talk to me. Right. And they assured me that their real enemy was not um, Israel. Their real enemy was America and Britain because they were crusaders. And that's, you know, 1995, <laughs> 96. Um, and it's very depressing that the Crusades still have that kind of echo and that meaning for people. Can I ask, I think you mentioned, I retired officially a long time ago, but I don't think the study has ended. What are you studying or where do you hope to travel next? Well, travel in the Middle East nowadays is a bit difficult. Um, I mean, I've, I very much love Syria. I've been to Syria, I think, a dozen times. Um, and you just can't go there anymore. It's a wreck. Um, and, you know, the only place you can really easily get to is is Israel, which I enjoy going to. Um, but um, travel to the Middle East is actually quite difficult at the moment. And um, I doubt very much. I mean, I'm 81. <laughs> And um, so, traveling to war zones is not necessarily how you envision your eighty-second no, no. year. <laughs> That's nicely put. <laughs> do you still read a lot of Crusader stuff, or do you just oh, yes, pick it I, occasionally? I, I keep up with the literature, and I write. I mainly I write about medieval warfare in general nowadays, rather than simply crusading warfare. Um, but I do continue to write, and uh, it keeps me alive, and um, you know it's a focus of interest, and I can't stop doing it. I get sometimes tired of it, but I can't stop it. Um, Wait, so then you leave me. I have one closing question because I talked to another gentleman who is uh, Dr. Jeremy Black, who super also obsessed with war and warfare. I know Jeremy very well. Yes. <laughs> What what is the appeal? And he's still he's still completely you know to steal a term entrenched in it. What is it about medieval, military, ancient, modern? What is it about warfare that's so fascinating to us? Well, I think you've got to realize that 
that medieval history is dominated by violence. Um, I'm not going to speak for Jeremy's period. <laughs> um, <laughs> but medieval history is dominated by violence. There's no doubt about that. People do try to write about it in other ways, and that's perfectly successful. But you cannot get away from the fact that almost on a day-to-day -day basis, this is a violent society where warfare takes place. And that warfare exerts a very powerful influence over the whole development of medieval warfare, of medieval Europe. You simply can't get away from that. And learning how it works, trying to understand particular incidents and see patterns of development, is really quite fascinating. Um, and it's the Len. I mean, I'm... I would regard myself as a medievalist and I look at medieval history through the lens of warfare and I find it a particularly illuminating way to look at the way medieval Europe and the world developed.